Today we're going to begin a short series of messages based on questions that have been asked by our students. Pastor Brian Edmonds uh, gave me a list of questions a few months ago. I'd asked him what kind of things students were asking about, so he, he solicited some input and uh, got a number of questions. And as you might imagine, questions from our students are very, very good questions indeed. And I can't promise to, to have answers to many of those, <clears throat> particularly not to the one today, because it's a tough question. And the question one of our students asked is this, why does God let bad things happen to good, innocent people? Now, none of us is perfectly good. Certainly none of us is perfectly innocent. But it's a fantastic question. People have been asking it throughout history. It's the reason many people give for not believing in God because of the bad things that happen in the world, what seems to be so unfair to so many. If God is good, if He is loving, if He's merciful, and if He's also all-powerful, why does He let bad things happen to really good people? We could understand if bad things only happen to bad people. That would fit our idea of fairness. But sometimes very, very good people suffer terribly. Sometimes the most kind, godly, giving, spiritually mature people suffer terrible tragedies and heartache. Why does God let that happen? Many parts of the world today, young children starving for lack of food. Many people look at that and, and simply conclude God must not exist. If he's all-powerful and could do something about it, and if he's loving and, and good, well, there seems to be a contradiction there. So the student's question is a very good question. And I cannot promise to give a fully satisfying answer to that question, but I do think the Bible helps to give us some, some guidance. <clears throat> And I'd like to consider this issue this morning. I'd like to start with this question, though. Why does suffering exist to begin with? And we can go back to the very beginning, the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis, when God put Adam and Eve <clears throat> in the Garden of Eden, gave them command, a command to follow and work to do. They disobeyed God, and God said to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. The very ground was now cursed. Well, the accumulation of human sin continued. They had two sons, Cain and Abel, and Cain murdered his brother Abel. <clears throat> and the Lord said to Cain, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. The accumulation of human sin continued. We get into the time of Noah when we read that the thoughts of everyone's uh, hearts were only evil all the time. 
Speaking of <clears throat> the world condition, the Apostle Paul, many years later in the book of Romans, would write the words you see on the screen. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. In other words, creation itself is waiting for something. It is waiting to be released from something. It is waiting for something new. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. In other words, we've been born of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives within us. We also know we're waiting for something new and better. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Paul is not saying we're not yet saved, we're not yet adopted by God, but he's saying there's much more to come. When Christ returns, when Jesus returns, a new heaven and a new earth and a new body, a resurrection body, the redemption of our bodies. <clears throat> but in this present time, we recognize that all is not as it should be because of the brokenness that's been brought about by human sin. Furthermore, the world is not only broken by sin, but this world is influenced by Satan. Satan, Jesus said, comes to steal and kill and destroy. He's referred to as the tempter. He's referred to as a liar. He's referred to in the verse you see on the screen by the Apostle Paul as the God, with a small g, of this world. He's also referred to by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 as the prince of the power of the air, which speaks to the fact that he has some degree of, of rule, some degree of, of power. The Apostle Paul would later write in that book, we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but principalities, powers, master rulers of the present darkness, spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. He has a degree of influence in this world, a significant degree. However, God is sovereign. God rules over all. God is in control over all things that take place. He is not subordinate to Satan. Satan is not his equal. God is the sovereign ruler over all. So the question still remains... Why does God allow bad things to happen? <clears throat> Maybe he's not the, the direct first cause of these terrible things, but, but if he is sovereign, why does he allow these things? And again, I can't give a perfectly satisfying answer. I know that. But there's another purpose in suffering and a reason why perhaps we can conclude it exists, and that is that God does use suffering in fulfilling his plans for his people. As you read through the Bible and you look at the key people in Scripture in whom God is at work and, and, and people who God's using, it's, it's highly significant to observe the degree to which many of those people went through suffering in their lives. Take, for example, the young man Joseph. When he was 17 years old, he was sold by his older jealous brothers into slavery. He was taken into Egypt at age 17 and put into the house of Pharaoh. Unjustly accused, he was thrown into prison. 
And by the time he got out of prison and began to serve in a prominent place under Pharaoh, he was 30 years old. 17 to 30. Imagine that. I wonder if he reflected over the years, I believed in God. Why is he so unfair? Why is this happening to me? I've done the right thing. Why is it happening? Why is it so unfair? Could he have known at that time that God had an incredible plan through him to preserve the life of his family, the people of Israel, through whom the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, would come and ultimately the Messiah? We go through the Old Testament and we could list person after person after person, the prophets, others. Ruth, young woman, married, widowed at a young age, destined to a life of poverty with her sister-in-law and her mother. Could she have possibly known that the circumstances of her life would be worked together as she chose to follow the true and living God through her suffering? such that she would end up being the great-grandmother of the great King David and the great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother of one who would come as the Savior of the world. If you read Matthew chapter 1, you'll find Ruth's name in that genealogy. What about King David? Well, he defeated Goliath. He had some great victories, but if we look at his life closely, it was marked throughout by suffering. Not only the loss of an infant child, but the persecution by his own son Absalom and then the death of his son Absalom and so much grief and turmoil in David's life. Who would have known, though, that this man who lived about 3,000 years ago, years later, we'd all be getting comfort out of the psalms that he wrote out of his times of suffering, the laments, the, the turning to God and hardships. Could he have known? What about Daniel, the young teenager, taken as a captive into Babylon? This godly young man, uncompromising young man, doing the right thing. Yet he seems to get put into these hard spots. Even because he prays, he's thrown into a den of lions. God uses him, not only to pray for his purposes in Israel, but to affect the very nation in which he's held captive. What about John the Baptist? Jesus said there's not risen a greater prophet than John the Baptist. He had his head cut off and put on a platter. Most important of all, Jesus. Prophet Isaiah writes of the Messiah, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Did God use the suffering of Christ to fulfill his plans for his people? Well, of course he did. If Jesus had not suffered being crucified and flogged and mocked and nailed to a cross, the whole plan of redemption could not have been. Isaiah would go on to say, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. On him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his stripes 
we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. What about Paul the Apostle? Wrote about half our New Testament books. <clears throat> Before this disciple named Ananias was sent by God to pray for Paul. God sent Ananias to pray for him so he'd receive his sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. God told Ananias, I'm, I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. It was a part of his calling. It was certainly fulfilled in his life. And Paul wrote the words that we're going to study today that Drew read a moment ago. But as you read through the history of the Christian church, the, the people God used greatly. I think of the great missionary Adoniram Judson. One of the great missionary biographies is his life story called To the Golden Shore. It's remarkable to me how marked his life was by terrible suffering. And yet the fruit that resulted even after he died that he wouldn't see in this life, was almost beyond belief. The great leaders of, of revival and movements of the Holy Spirit, John Wesley, George Whitfield, Charles Spurgeon, lesser knowns like Robert Murray McShane, these people, all their lives were marked by some significant suffering, physical ailment, even some for them unhappy marriages, difficult things. Life wasn't, wasn't perfect for them. But it seems like God, in his great economy, in his great wisdom, as Paul says, he's able to work all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And so does God actually use the suffering of this world? As difficult as it is, it seems that he does. <clears throat> well, let me raise this question now. How can suffering lead to something good in the life of a follower of Jesus? How? Well, the Apostle Paul is stressing that in the passage that Drew read for us just a few minutes ago in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. The whole book of 2 Corinthians is a great book to, to understand this theme a little bit better because the Apostle Paul speaks in a very personal way in this book about his own sufferings, and they were significant, and they were numerous, and they continued, apparently, throughout his Christian ministry. <coughs> Paul notes, first of all, that suffering can lead to something good in a follower of Jesus by teaching us to rely on God's grace and power rather than our own abilities. Paul writes, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. When he says jars of clay, I think he's referring to our weak human bodies to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed. Now, to be perplexed means, he said, we, we, we're uncertain sometimes. We have doubts. We wonder, why is this happening to me? But we're not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always caring about in the body the death of Jesus, so the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Paul's saying, my, my body's weak. I'm weak. But God's power is being manifested in me and through me. 
we're learning to depend <clears throat> not on ourselves but on Him, His surpassing power. It's often in times of suffering that people realize they can't fix everything themselves. They can't fix everything in lives themselves. I've heard people say that sometimes. I learned when this happened, I couldn't control my life. I couldn't fix it. I had to have God. I had to turn to God. We have to rely on Him and trust Him. Secondly, how can suffering lead to something good in the life of a follower of Jesus? Paul notes, by enabling us to minister to others more effectively. As Paul talks about being given over to death and, and not losing heart because though our outward being is, is perishing, our inward being is being renewed, he says, it's all for your sake. So that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. In other words, I'm going through what I'm going through <clears throat> so the gospel can go forth. In chapter 1 of the same book, he said it, I think, even more clearly <clears throat> when he wrote, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction." Paul's saying, in other words, everything I'm going through, all these afflictions I'm writing about, God's comforting me. Why? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. In other words, as I've gone through this, as I've learned to walk with God through this, <clears throat> I'm now better able to minister to someone else who's going through something similar. Not everybody can say to a person who's experienced a terrible tragedy, not everybody can say to them, I know what you're going through. But someone who's experienced something similar can say to that person, I, I do know what you're going through. And I'm here for you and here with you. Sometimes as we walk with God, and I emphasize walking with God, continuing to walk with God through our suffering, we're better enabled to minister to people who go through suffering ourselves. Thirdly, how can suffering lead to something good in the life of a follower of Jesus? By causing us to think more about eternity. I think eternity <clears throat> is one of the most important biblical teachings that is most neglected by Christians today. Christianity today tends to focus on life now, getting your best life now, with little, little regard for eternity. But the Bible is heavily weighted, as we'll see, I think, this morning, with emphasis on contemplating, thinking about, focusing on eternity. The Apostle Paul, who suffered a great deal, wrote, in the passage we're studying today, for this light momentary affliction, and as you read Paul's life, I think you'd probably conclude like I do, his, his afflictions seem like anything but light and momentary. This light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. While we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, that is, they're they're transitory, they're temporal, they're passing away. But the things that are unseen are eternal. 
Paul is pointing us to one of the most important yet most neglected truths for believers who go through suffering on earth, and that is this. A believer's suffering is only on earth. The diagram you'll see on the screen has been really helpful to me when it comes to thinking about eternity. I think of eternity sometimes as an endless line, the line that you see that continues beyond where the screen stops. It goes forever. God is eternal. By our faith in Jesus, we've been given eternal life with him forever. Life on earth is a mere drop in the endless ocean of eternity. We might think of it as the dot there, however long it might be. In comparison with eternity, it's simply a point in time, a dot. And for believers, all suffering is confined to this dot. All suffering for believers will come to an end. Because Jesus suffered for us, being crucified, raised from the dead, having borne our judgment and through faith provided us with his righteousness, we'll live with him forever. And Paul says, these light momentary afflictions that we're experiencing are working for us something, an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things on the dot, but at the things that are unseen, For the things on the dot are temporal, temporary, transient. They're passing away. But this kingdom of God, this unseen world he's provided for us is eternal. So how can suffering lead to something good in the life of a follower of Jesus, in the life of a believer? One, by teaching us to rely on God's grace and power by enabling us to minister to others more effectively, and by causing us to think more about eternity. So I want to conclude with one final question, and that is this. How should you and I respond to the sufferings that we face, have, uh, are certain to face in the future or facing now? Number one, Pray for wisdom as to the cause of the suffering. Sometimes suffering is an attack of Satan. We're not called to submit to Satan. The posture of a believer toward the devil, toward Satan, is one of resistance. James wrote, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Peter wrote, your adversary, the devil goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom whom he may devour. Resist him steadfastly in the faith. Recurring temptations, strong temptations, uh, addictions, sometimes fears, sometimes mental, emotional assaults can come from the devil. We need discernment, wisdom as to discerning that at times. But when it's an attack of Satan, we resist. Some suffering 
is linked to some degree in our own sin. I would never tell a person suffering horribly, you're suffering because of your sin. But oftentimes in a strained relationship, for example, our own sin may contribute to that. Sometimes in a troubled marriage, which can be the worst suffering that a person goes through in life. We have to be willing to say, is my sin contributing something to this? Maybe it's 99% my wife and just 1% me, but at least I can confess my 1%, and I might start there and find out it's 50% or 60 or 70. But suffering's a good time to examine yourself because sometimes we get ourselves into trouble. Our pride, our jealousy, wrong attitudes, self-centeredness, conflict with somebody at work that seems like a great burden. Oh, I'm suffering, and it may be to a large extent, my own fault. So it's a time to search our own hearts. And then sometimes suffering is simply unknown. <clears throat> Oftentimes. So what do we do? Well, James says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God, pray. Is it right to pray for it to end? Sure. James said, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. It's one of the reasons we do pray. We pray often for suffering to end. Praise God for the grace He's provided in our world that suffering can end. If you're in terrible pain, one of God's great gifts to us is the medical care we have. And He gives wisdom to our uh, caregivers, our health care folks, to help us in those things. We pray for wisdom. How else should we respond to suffering? I'm praying to grow in endurance and closeness to God through the suffering. Never turn away from God when you're suffering or disappointed always turn to Him. When you turn away, you forsake the one who's going to work in you and draw you close to Himself and increase your steadfastness and endurance. James tells us one of the reasons we should count it all joy when we go through trials is that when our faith is tested, a quality results called steadfastness or endurance or perseverance. And it is a necessary quality if we want to be mature spiritually. Blessed is the one who remains steadfast under trial, James says. And then finally, how should we respond to suffering? Excuse me. Focus on eternal realities. I mentioned to you how significant this theme is in the Bible. And I really want to emphasize, emphasize that to you right now. Um, And so we're going to look at several verses of Scripture. And as we do, notice in these passages the verbs, the verbs, what we're being called to do, to focus on, to set our minds on, to seek, to look at. Look at the verbs. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look We look, we put our attention, our focus, not on things that are seen, but on things that are unseen. Paul's talking about thinking about eternity. We tend to put all of our thoughts into that little dot. All of our dreams, hopes, aspirations, vision, we put it all in the dot. 
our money, our investments, what we're going to do if we retire, when, where, how, all about the dot, when it's eternity that goes forever. Paul is calling us to put some focus there. Next verse, Philippians chapter 3, Paul reminds us, our citizenship is in heaven. That's our real home. And from it, from heaven, we await a Savior. We're awaiting. Waiting is not passively sitting around doing nothing, but it's active trust, anticipating. Anticipating Jesus' return and that transformation of this lowly body to being like his glorious body. Focusing on that, thinking about it, awaiting it, anticipating it. Thirdly, in Colossians chapter 3, Paul says, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek. Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on earth. Think about it. Think about eternity. Think about the fact that it's a reality. 1 Peter chapter 1, therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What do you dream about all the time? What do you think about all the time? Most of us would say most of the time it's got something to do with stuff of this life and relatively little on what it's going to be like when Jesus returns, and that is going to happen. Set your hope fully there. First John chapter 3, Beloved, we're God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. What a marvelous thought. Paul says his, his, his body, he calls it a tent later in that passage. <clears throat> He's already called it a jar of clay, and he says it's passing away. <laughs> it's falling apart. But he says we've got a building from God, eternal in the heavens. It's going to be like Christ's glorious body. When he appears, we'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. And Paul says there's something about contemplating this that's important. There's something about having this hope in your mind that's important. It has a purifying effect on your life to think about this. Everyone who thus hopes in himself purifies himself as he is pure. It is a purifying hope to contemplate what it'll be like when Jesus appears. Could you put on the screen one more time, um, Melissa, I think is back there, the, the diagram of the, uh, the yeah. <clears throat> we tend to put all our emphasis on this dot. When the New Testament is calling us to set our minds, to focus upon, to think about, to hope fully upon, the grace that will be ours when Jesus comes.
Set your minds on things above, not on things of this earth. Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Everyone who thus hopes purifies himself as he is pure. There's a tremendous benefit to living life on earth with an eternal perspective. Looking through things in life through the lens of eternity. Knowing what's really significant. Knowing what's really important. People who get this kind of vision are people who use their money and their resources for the glory of God. People who get this kind of vision are people who are willing to leave the comfort of their home and go to the uttermost parts of the earth for the glory of God. People who get this kind of vision are able to endure much suffering and hardship in life for the glory of God. Because of what Jesus came to do. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternity, everlasting life, eternal life. It's only because of him. It's his gift to us. We'll share it with him. And today we celebrate what he's done to provide this great thing for us in what we call the Lord's Supper. <clears throat> Those of you who did not get a packaged cup, our ushers will have some at the back, and if you need one, just raise your hand and they'll be happy to bring one to you. In the meantime, <clears throat> I'd like to read these words written by the Apostle Paul. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Wow. We're awaiting his return. And as we await, we remember what he's done. Paul then gives a warning. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Communion is a time to examine ourselves. Most importantly, to be sure that you have truly put your faith in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. He is your Lord. You're following him. He's in the driver's seat. And if that's not the case... Today would be a wonderful day to take that step of faith and let this be your first communion as his follower, as his child. For those of us who are believers, it's a time to search our hearts, to forgive anyone we need to forgive. If our relationship with God, one another, his people, is not what it should be, that we pray about that and ask him to make it right. So would you join me as we pray now? Father, we come in the name of Jesus. Lord, we want to take communion today in the way that's right in your eyes. So please help us. Speak to us in any way we need to change in order to take this rightly. 
if you are not certain whether you are indeed a born-again child of God. But you do believe Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the dead. You can simply pray a prayer like this, dear God. I believe Jesus died on the cross for me and you raised him from the dead to give me eternal life. Please forgive my sins. I turn away from them and I turn to you. Be my Savior and be my Lord from this day forward. Amen. And now for those who'd like to participate, I'll give you a moment to open the bottom of the little packet. Got to be careful. The wafer falls right out. And we can partake together. The body of Christ given for you. And now the juice. The precious blood of Christ was shed for you. I want to remind you that when we close the service in a moment, we're going to have people at these tables in the back. They're there to pray for you if you have a need in your life. If you're going through some suffering and you need someone to pray with you, to have your hope renewed. If you need healing, if you need prayer for a family member or friend, take advantage of that. But at this time, we're going to continue to worship the Lord, and I'll invite you to stand. <clears throat> and before we sing, if you'd like, and if it expresses what you believe, I'd invite you to join me in saying aloud one of the oldest statements of belief in the history of the Christian church. It's called the Apostles' Creed. You'll see it on the screen. Let's say it together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting.